Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, December 6th, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Hero, an independent fish enthusiast, and that's no bull. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good one, Guy. That was a good one. Today we're talking about bull trout, and our guests are fisheries biologist Dan Brewer and Oregon Statewide Coordinator for Bull Trout, Stephanie Gunkel. Welcome, you two. Hello. Great. Thanks. So, yeah, I really want to know all about these fish. And the first thing I'd like to know is, you know, what do they look like? So if we were to, say, go snorkeling in some cold pool in the Pacific Northwest, we come across these fish. What do they look like? What colors are they? How big are they? Well, if you're snorkeling in a pool in the Pacific Northwest, you're more likely going to see um, some of the larger migratory adults, which are fairly big. They're kind of a solid brown color with light spotting. They are a char, so they don't have dark spots on their bodies, but, but they're mostly a light spotted. And as they move into spawning colors closer to the fall, they'll get orange bellies. Their fins will be orange. They usually have a white leading edge on their anal fins and pectoral fins. So that, that's usually... Sometimes if it's dark in the water, that's the only thing you can see is these, their light leading edges. And, and then once your eyes adjust, then you realize that they're attached to this much larger fish, which is kind of a cool experience. As Stephanie mentioned, that white leading edge is a big identifier of bull trout. And we've had a lot, we have a lot of difficulty with separating bull trout from brook trout from brown trout. So clear no spotting in the dorsal fin is a big is a big deal. It's a no no spots put it back mantra, and then generally orange to red spots, light like like Stephanie said. Okay, so that sounds like I mean they sound like a really beautiful, cool fish. What kind of habitats are they using throughout the year, and are the you know juvenile life stages using different habitats than the larger fish that you just mentioned? As far as habitat is, it's another, we have another uh, mantra for that, clean, cold, connected, complex. So I wanted to mention that if you were snorkeling for large bull trout, you'd be wearing a dry suit or a wetsuit, or you wouldn't be snorkeling very long because they like it cold, complex habitat, lots of wood, lots of undercut banks, deep pools, lots of forage fish. If if you're in uh, Stephanie's neck of the woods. So... I've had the fortune of handling some bull trout, but not many. And one thing that really struck me when I first saw them was they, compared to some of the other salmonids we out, we have out here, your other salmon and trout and, and char, is that they appeared to be really kind of long and slender. And I'm curious, is that the case with just with this one stream resident population that I was interacting with? Or is that the case across the board? Or did I just see some really weird trout? <laughs> um, well, that's hard to say. I don't think of them as slender, you know, usually, especially if there's a lot of forage base, you know, they're pretty robust. Maybe that speaks to one of the things that I think is amazing about bull trout is that there is a lot of variability. You know, we say that they live in in complex habitats, which they do, but Dan's working in Montana. I'm working in Oregon. 
we have some colleagues in Idaho and Washington, and together we're working on bull trout issues range wide. And it never ceases to amaze me how much we all have different perspectives based on just the locale that we're working in, because there is so much variability range wide. So what are the, some of the biggest issues out in your neck of the woods out there in Oregon that bull trout are facing? Uh, non-native species are an issue. Both brook trout and lake trout um, impact native bull trout populations. Habitat degradation, issues with barriers and connectivity. You know, they are natively a migratory fish. So dams and culverts and diversions really impede their ability to move between habitats and migrate. Are there concerns with warming temperatures at all or some of the different fire issues that are happening in that neck of the woods? Very much. (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, climate change is something that we think about a lot in terms of just trying to bolster the habitat so that we can have cold water refuges persist into the future, knowing that we may not be able to conserve everything. So we've talked a lot this year about salmon and why migration is important. And, you know, they go to the ocean where they become large. They pursue different foods that they can't necessarily get in fresh water. And I'm looking at, you know, some bull trout online and I I do see that they're quite large. And, you know, are they migrating to pursue food or are they migrating to just access different habitats that they need throughout the year for their different life stages? Why are they why do they need to move? You know, I think it's very similar to salmon, right? Like they they move to find more food that helps them grow larger. Food availability tends to be in larger habitats, whether it's a larger river or a lake, or there are anadromous bull trout that are on the, what, help me, Dan. On the coast? <laughs> on the, the, in, up in uh, the Olympic Peninsula. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, so they all are going up to the, these larger habitats to have better options for food. They get larger. Um, They may come back every year. Some bull trout populations return every other year to spawn. But by growing larger, they are more fecund, meaning they have produced more eggs. So when they go back to their spawning streams, they're able to produce more eggs and therefore more young. So it's really a numbers game in terms of you're heading out to these bigger habitats for more food, but it's riskier, but it pays off if you get back to your spawning grounds with more, hopefully more juveniles. Yeah, I'd say Salmonids as a whole have this really unique life history in terms of uh, you have these resident and these migratory fish and fluvial and adfluvial, and much of that might just be a factor of the way or how they evolved with the expansion and retraction of ice sheets over millennia, I guess. And, you know, so these fish were adapting to all those different opportunities throughout time. And so now we end up with this very plastic organism that can do amazing migrations or stay put and survive in very harsh conditions with very limited resources I think that's another trait with these fish is, you know, it's a tough go, a high alpine, third order stream, not a lot to eat. Making out a living there is pretty incredible. Hmm. To change subjects completely, I'd like to talk about the 
kind of discovery of this fish as its own fish, because it's a fairly newly described species compared to a lot of the other salmonids. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and then what distinguishes it from its most close relatives. Yeah, I think bull trout and Dolly Varden were considered the same fish up until like late 70s. I'm only guessing, but I'm assuming that's because Dolly Varden and bull trout probably look very similar in when they're both in full spawning color, bright red bellies, bright orange to red belly. Both fish kind of look the same, but in 78, they started really looking into it. And as far as I know, there's different neuromystic uh, attributes that separate the fish, but I think the biggest one is that they don't interbreed. There's no evidence of uh, Dolly Varden and bull trout interbreeding. Are there any places where Dolly Varden and bull trout co-occur, or do they have distinct ranges that don't overlap? I believe just in the southern distribution of Dolly Varden, down around the Olympic Peninsula and, you know, the border of Canada and the United States. But there isn't a lot of direct overlap. I got a question about, I guess it's kind of related to their name and also the invasive species piece that you guys mentioned. I mean, so their name is bull trout. They're quite big. You would think that, you know, with that name, I don't know if it has anything to do with their behavior or their size, but I mean, are they being outcompeted by some of those other trout you mentioned? And what do we know about their name, bull trout? That's a good question. I don't know where bull trout came from. Do you, Dan? I... I, I couldn't nail it down, I guess, with any like validity behind it, I guess. But, um, you know, one of the characteristics that I don't know if we mentioned, but the bull trout might be in reference to its head. Likely guy, when you caught that fish, it might have been a post-spawn fish that was kind of skinny. But I bet the head was outstandingly large compared to its body, compared to many other salmonids. So, yeah, the big, large head is definitely a characteristic not to be overlooked. Many of us who still get the opportunity to work in the field and you collect bull trout and you put them in a a live car with other fish, you turn back around to see the second largest fish in the live car halfway down the throat of a bull trout. (laughs) So maybe that's where you get that from. They definitely take on some pretty big prey base uh, to their own size. It always amazes me what they can jam in their mouth. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. And how do they stack up against, you mentioned some of those non-native introduced trout, like if they're in the same habitat, are they being outcompeted in terms of, you know, maybe certain life stages? Yeah, generally like brook trout, which are, you know, native on the East Coast and were brought over in the early 1800s or so. Generally, brook trout in the same conditions would outcompete bull trout. Uh, the same conditions meaning like a fish of the same size. There is some thought that there's a little bit of temperature-mediated competition there where in the colder water, bull trout would be more dominant. In warmer waters, definitely brook trout would be able to outcompete bull trout. Other species, you know, like lake trout or brown trout, we think that they're also able to outcompete. Lake trout are predators, so they usually eat bull trout or disrupt the food web in, in the lakes that they both inhabit. So depending on the species, non-native fish cause a myriad of challenges for bull trout. And then uh, behind that, probably 
hybridization with brook trout. Yeah. So bull trout and brook trout can hybridize. And then the offspring, interesting enough, tend to be sterile. So you don't get these things called um, hybrid swarms. So a hybrid swarm is where you have two hybrids that are uh, reproducing. So you don't see that in bull trout, brook trout hybrids that often. It does occur, but not very often. And it's kind of, I don't want to say tamp down the overall impact of that hybridization because you do lose a year class. You have a sterile your offspring. So you're, you are losing fish, but it's not as, I don't know, aggressive in terms of taking over a population genetically. I would love to hear about some of the real world efforts that you guys are helping to lead and coordinate to work towards the conservation of bull trout and maybe trying to restore some of this connectivity, keep them waters cool and clear. Well, there's quite a bit of work going on range wide. You know, one of the maybe higher profile efforts, at least in Oregon, we've reintroduced a population of bull trout into the Clackamas River. Bull trout there were extirpated probably like in the 1950s. And just recently, we've reintroduced fish from the Deschutes Basin and brought them over and have been trying to reestablish a population in the Clackamas River. So we're kind of still in the middle of seeing whether the fish that we've brought over are going to be able to to maintain a self-sustaining population. But so far, efforts have looked positive and we are seeing spawning of those fish in the Clackamas River. And we're using that as a tool to learn how to potentially reintroduce fish in, in other places. Right on. Thank you. You know, on the show, a lot of times we talk about fishing, um, and I know we've talked about some other imperiled fishes that still have fishing opportunities with, for example, broodstock. Are there any opportunities for folks to interact with these fish in the wild, or what's the situation with that? In Montana, we have three recreational fisheries. I think two of them, you're still allowed to keep one bull trout in there. It's fairly tightly regulated, but yeah, it's it's very popular. It's gotten to the point now where we're going to re-review what our standing fishing regulations are or the state's regulations are for that opportunity. That's catch and release in the rivers and then a couple of lakes, you're allowed to keep a fish. So yeah, with the advent of Instagram and other social media, <laughs> it seems to have really taken off. Uh, COVID really, we saw a big bump in angling and recreational folks out and about in some of these fairly remote areas. I mean, it's not easy to get to at least one of the sites. And then the other recreational fishery is actually in Lake Kukunusa, which is a transboundary uh, reservoir, which so it's it's uh, maybe a third of it's in the United States and the rest of it's in Canada. So um, that's another opportunity for folks to go out and angle for fish. That's a large reservoir situation. Do you have any tips for folks on what to expect if they catch a bull trout versus, say, some of the other trout species or charred species in the area? You know, it just depends on where you're fishing, but be prepared to deal with a large fish. You know, this isn't a six-inch trout net mm-hmm. up fish here in some of the more highly prized areas. So, you know, and then handling large fish can be difficult so be prepared for that if you if you do that. Keep them in the water. Try not to lift them out of the water. 
You need to take a photo, have that stuff all ready to go. Don't land the fish and then try to find your camera. <laughs> yeah. Drag it up onto the bank or anything. Yeah, I think some of those photos where you take a picture of the fish like half in, half out of the water, you know, I think those look really cool. So that's a maybe a tip for folks if you do catch one and are releasing it. Make sure to have your hands wet when you handle them so we don't want to knock that slime layer off or anything. Yeah, there's a recent publication. I think it's titled, Do Smartphones Kill Bull Trout? Oh, good title. <laughs> Catchy. They found some evidence of like large trophy fish people were handling and, you know, having them up out of the water for almost two minutes. So, um, and had saw some increased mortality. So, you know, originally when the fish was listed, we we were saying don't take it out of the water. So, you know, had to have at least one fin touching the water. And I think that's still our recommendation today. What's the biggest one that's on record weight-wise or length-wise? I think in Montana, it's 42 inches length. And then according to Wikipedia, I think I saw something 32 pounds, but that sounds about about right. I have one final question, and that's um, basically, you know, is there any message you'd like to give folks listening on how they can help bull trout or just anything you want them to know about this really neat fish? In my neck of the woods, I'd say don't give up on bull trout just yet. You know, there's a lot of dire climate predictions out there. You know, bull trout are very cold water dependent and it does the the long-term picture for bull trout in many areas in the lower 48 does not look good. But there are ongoing stressors that have been at play for quite a while that we haven't fully addressed. And so there's still opportunity out there to recover some of these populations. I don't think it's to the point where we should be turning down any and all opportunities to recover the, the species at this point in the climate change game. It's just an amazing species that for some reason isn't center stage, which I think they definitely deserve to be. So you know, I think Dan and I are, and others are here advocating just for folks to appreciate them, appreciate their habitats. And like Dan said, you know, they're definitely worth conserving. And so, you know, to think about that as we're hiking through the woods and making land management decisions that anything that we can do to foster the persistence and the resiliency of these species, I think we as a society are much better off. So long live bull trout. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, thank you two very much for joining us today. And we hope that everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish and definitely learn about the bull trout and, you know, just a plug for native fish. I mean, there's a really cool diversity around the United States. And I I think you're right in that, you know, this is an important species to keep thinking about and keep trying to conserve. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you for like getting the message out there. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguine, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, 
our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.